episode number three, Julie Fox. And welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm your very excited host, Michael Cruz. And this week I bring you another Stratford interview, this time with designer Julie Fox. Julie's career has taken her all over the globe, but we stick mostly to her work here in Canada in this interview I did in May of 2016 in the once again very noisy meeting room at the Festival Theatre in Stratford, Ontario. Now make sure to check out the show notes. Uh, it'll help uh, inform the conversation. I sort of follow along and add, uh, especially name references, so you can, you can uh, sort of be in the know. Uh, and if you're able, please go to Patreon to support the Title Block Podcast. Go now to patreon.com forward slash the Title Block Podcast and help us cover, for example, the $60 rental fee it takes to bring you high-quality community discussions about production and design, like the latest Bellows Podcast, which is going to be coming out in about a month now, uh, and we'll cover... Uh, contracts and fees, something you do not want to miss. If you have any comments about the show, please forward them to thetitleblock at gmail.com or contact us through Facebook or Twitter. I would love to hear from you. And now, my conversation with designer Julie Fox. Julie Fox has been a designer for over 20 years, splitting her time uh, between working in Canadian theatre and working in her garden in the Czech Republic. And she joins me today at the Stratford Festival, where she is designing Macbeth. Welcome to the title block. Thanks. Now, where did you, you grew up in a small village outside of Hamilton, right? Where was that? That's right. I grew up in Waterdown, mostly. I moved there when I was nine. So I had lived in Burlington before that, and uh, then we moved to Waterdown, and I lived there until I um, moved away uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah, and that was to New Zealand. Yes. How did you get to New Zealand? Oh, my dad was a scientist, so he did a research exchange, and I tagged along uh, for a year in New Zealand. And then from there, I kind of hopscotched over mm. to uh, Australia and uh, um, Southeast Asia. That's what a great <laughs> opportunity. How old were you at that point? Uh, I, 18. 18. Yeah. What yeah. a great adventure to go on when you're 18, eh? It was, uh, it was huge, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exciting. And you made your way, I find this awesome, that you made your way to, uh, to become a stagehand. At the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, that was my first out? professional job. That's incredible. <laughs> first of all, what, what made you decide to go to work as a stagehand in, in, in Sydney? <laughs> and, and how did you decide that, uh, that you, know, you wanted to, to go to theatre? Oh, well, I had been involved in theatre since I was nine. Uh, there was this amazing um, uh, uh, little theatre group in Waterdown where they did... Uh, it was uh, a group that was started by um, three couples kind of like living together on a farm. And they were extremely dedicated um, uh, to theatre and they had like very high artistic standards. So they didn't do the kind of like just farces. They did, you know, like... They did Equus with like full frontal male nudity right, right, in the right. kind of local Legion Hall, and right. uh, it was when I finally read um, the Empty Space of Peter Brook, and he was talking about how some amateur theater can be more alive and vibrant than professional theater. I was like, yeah, I know, I lived through that. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a very um, 
uh, formative uh, experience growing up with that group. Right. Yeah. What was the name of the group? Sorry. Uh, Waterdown Village Theater. Great. And do you remember the people who were involved in, uh, as the as the founders and creators? Yeah, it was uh, Lisby and Mike Ray, and Gord and Janet Raymond were really the big. Um, right. So you had these ideas in your head uh, well before starting in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was probably an obvious thing. Well, I'll just get a job at the theater. Like that seems like a. Yeah, a I was looking through the job right? classified, and there was this, and I was uh, I had a couple of architects who were my um, students were my uh, roommates at the time. And, uh, and maybe actually they pointed out the, the job posting to me. And I was like, I can't do that. And, and they were like, yeah, sure you can. And I'm like, well, okay, um, okay, explain to me how to build a table. You know, I was like trying to do a crash course on uh, <laughs> But as it turned out, the, um, uh, they had to hire women at the time. There's a kind of job quote. So basically any woman who showed up probably would have been given a job. And right. I, I sort of faked up exaggerated my experience and, and got right. it. Yeah. And, got it. Mm. And, and you were there for a year? Yeah. How was that experience working in that environment? And uh, that it was amazing. It was extremely challenging. The sexism was, was kind of extraordinary. I mean, and, you know, they had a... Uh, the green room served alcohol, and they had to. They closed it down for a few hours every afternoon so people could dry out. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> there was a lot of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with people who are also quite, um, you know, they they had big personalities mm-hmm. and they were very exaggerated. And uh, uh, but I was really um, determined to do a really good job, mm-hmm. and so I kind of worked my way up the ladder. But also, I got to see, you know, there were four theaters, um, including the concert hall, and I got to see all these shows kind of from the wings. Mm-hmm. And, like, they had, um, you know, festivals where they were inviting um, Japanese. They had an exchange with the Japanese theater groups. And so I saw incredible kabuki shows and was working on those shows. It was uh, fantastic. Awesome. So I would say that's that kind of, like, and I was super interested in the set designs that were kind of passing through. and. I, uh, and and you ended up at NTS eventually. When did you come back to Canada, and how did you land? You traveled for a bit after you were at Sydney. Yeah, I went to Southeast Asia, and I, got, I went to, like, I was looking for this, uh, I was quite politicized at the time, and was looking for this in the Philippines. There was this, um, PETA was the acronym. It was a, a theater group that had helped kind of, like, um, depose Marcos, that they oh, were wow. very... Um, Involved with the kind of grassroots organization of kind of politicizing local people mm-hmm. in villages through theater. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like, is it kind of Brechtian? Right. And I was very excited and interested. And so that's what partly made me want to go to Southeast Asia. So I went to the Philippines, but kind of by myself and with no, you know, the Lonely Planet wasn't talking about this theater group. <laughs> so, and it was a pretty dangerous place. So uh, it was... Um, you know, I didn't find that theater group, but I ended up traveling around. And then when I came back to Canada, it was uh, probably 1989 or 1990. Yeah. Right. And National Theater School seemed like a logical place to go. You had done a bit of... Well, before, when I came back, I just got a job at the COC as a production assistant and then at the Tarragon as a house manager. And then from there, I started to, it didn't occur to me to, I was going to go back and study architecture, but I had to pick up some math um, credits that I hadn't uh, got from high school. So I was actually uh, taking... um, like remedial courses in math while I was uh, at the Tarragon. And then I met someone who was studying at NTS in design, and I was like, oh, hey, this kind of um, 
combines a bunch of interests. Yeah, that's great. It's not uncommon to have architecture connections. Uh, Jim Plaxton we spoke to. I just spoke to uh, Brenda Garricky, and she had architectural con- connections as well. It seems like a logical connection for for set designers especially. Hmm. Uh, so that makes total sense. Uh, how was your time at NTS? You had uh, you moved to Montreal, obviously. Um, had you been there before? Like, was was uh, did you fit into the community well and? Oh, for me, it was, time. yeah, that was also huge. And before I decided to go there, uh, you know, I was looking at various schools and, and I went and visited Montreal and I went to see a show at Espace Libre that Carbon 14 was uh, doing called Le Dottoir. And it was this kind of dance. So, you know, this was in the mm, early 90s when dance theater was a big, like, yeah. you know, raging thing yeah. and Lepage. And yeah. it was a whole other kind of theater than was going on in English Canada. And I went to see that show and I was just like so excited by it. And it was, uh, and I was like, okay, I'm studying here. This is, <laughs> <laughs> And then so it was fantastic to be in Montreal and get to see um, the work that the Francophones were doing. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't had anybody on the show uh, from uh, Quebec Theatre, which is a bit of a lament. I've been trying to um, maybe connect to Michel Charbonneau and, uh, and some other people, but I haven't been able to get anybody on. It's, uh, uh, it's, something, it's a part of theatre that, that uh, Anglophones easily ignore. Right. And when you're outside of Quebec, and unless like Robert Lepage comes to Toronto or does a tour or something, yeah. uh, you kind of forget that this is whole different tradition, theater tradition that we have in Canada, that is uh, singular unto itself. Uh, and unless you're involved in, I mean, circus kind of packaged it and made it, you know, their own thing. But it's it's yeah. something we don't really get uh, connection to very often, I think. And there was something about world stage, you know, used to be a kind of. Or maybe I just had more free time and I went to see more, but it was like a big thing in the 90s to go and see all the shows that came through World Stage, and there was a lot of work from Quebec, so you got exposed to it. Then. Yeah, exactly. I think that the, the day they outlawed uh, smoking advertising, which which was no, like it makes sense, right? You're trying to curb people doing this nasty habit, but it made it, it was a huge hit when they when they when they yeah. stopped that in the yeah. 90s and world stage was one of the sad casualties i mean they still they still produce but it's nowhere near the scale that uh, was exactly. going on there yeah. Yeah. um and so nts uh you had a great time there you came out of nts what was your first kind of big break uh it would i guess it would have been um actually in my last year there uh a an actor that I had worked with um, in Toronto on a Fringe show uh, got a gig directing for um, a piece at Theatre New Brunswick and asked me, that was John Dolan, and he asked me to uh, design that. So that was my first, you know, it was a big um, big deal to be able to design um, professionally at a large regional theatre like uh, Theatre New Brunswick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Janet Amos was there, I think, at that time, wasn't she? Actually, it was Michael Shimada. Oh, it was Michael Shimada. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a great and then guy. Mike, and then I... Uh, I think the following year he asked me to design um, costumes for A Christmas Carol, and that was, I'm still, we're still doing those those costumes, so I have to renovate them every few years. <laughs> oh my God, who knew, eh? I, I guess that's one of the one of the uh, one of the staples, right? If you can do A Christmas Carol, then you're good to go for yeah. the next several years. You can do like uh, do a, do a Rigoletto, and they'll always pull that one out of the box, like. Like those are the shows you want to get onto as a designer. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. And you, now, do you um, you formed early relationships with a couple key directors out of Toronto as well. One of them is Daniel Brooks. Um, anything else after Theatre New Brunswick? You, did you move back to Toronto? I moved uh, back to Toronto, and 
yeah, I did shows uh, like uh, Factory, um, Theatre Passamari, you know, and, and kind of the regionals. I was traveling a lot, going out to uh, Winnipeg and mm-hmm. Nova Scotia and places like that, yeah. Doing all the regional, doing the regional circuit. The regional circuit, yeah. yeah. That's great. And how was you? How did you first um, uh, get invited to work with Daniel? Something it was un, a good sort of a happy. Yeah, I had. I guess he had seen my work. You know, I'd done a show at the Tarragon by then, and he uh, he was doing uh, Possible Worlds, a John Mighton piece um, at Theatre Passamorai, and um, Michael Levine uh, was supposed to design it, but Michael was uh, very busy, and Michael was kind of casting around for someone to um, pick up and. Uh, uh, for him, and he asked me to do that, and so I met with Daniel, and that was the beginning of a long collaborative relationship with Daniel. And that was a really big show at the, at the time. Like the it, Possible Worlds was a big hit, and that was the backspace. It of, was the backspace of Theater Fest, with like yeah. the smallest theater on the planet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it was somehow it was very it was a significant production for John. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of you know uh, um, he felt like somebody had finally kind of like right. understood. Yeah his kind of worldview and his plays and how they worked and like Lepage saw it and loved it we toured it to um uh Lepage's uh, space in Quebec City and uh um we toured it to Ottawa many places out out east yeah. how, um, how did the design change I mean they're going from this small really posted stamp of a stage it's only 12 by 12 or something um 14 by 18 14 by 18 yeah <laughs> i was exaggerating but still 14 by yeah. 18 can you imagine and the grid is you know 18 feet or, or you know 17 feet high uh what did you have to do it must have been a real just a redesign once you started touring it out of that small space and making it a bigger deal right Actually, it's, well, it is, it's, you know, um, when you kind of like make a space that responds so explicitly to the theater volume that it originally um, exists in, it can be very, you know, it can attenuate the the impact of the work when you just, you know, it doesn't, it's not the same when you just plop it down um, in another theater. And we were very conscious of that. So we actually recreated whenever possible, the backspace of Theatre Passamari. So we would make this black box kind of within the bigger volume, kind of with blacks and sort of like hem in the audience and a kind of tiny, and so that they, yeah. If you can't come to Passamari, we'll bring Passamari to you. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. (laughs) It doesn't matter where it is. Uh, That's terrific. And and what other kind of big shows have you done with Daniel? You've done many with him, right? Uh, We did uh, Insomnia, which is um, a a play that he wrote, uh, and we like I have a long history with the theater center and I'm going to work on um, a show this summer with Heidi Strauss who's a choreographer and uh, which I'm very excited it'll be my first show at the new theater center because I worked on the, the- at the theater center when it was at the great hall and yeah. then before that so with Daniel you know this was when you know Daniel had the Augusta company it was those years mm-hmm. you know with the kind of dirt floor yeah. basement yeah. that's right yes <laughs> Uh, so Insomnia is a show that we later remounted and toured to um, Calgary and back to Toronto. Uh, the Eco Show, uh, we did Endgame at Soul Pepper, um, and others. And others, that's okay. <laughs> I think we first met on Endgame. We were trying to figure that out earlier, uh, which was a great show. That was, uh, was, well, it was really fantastic. Uh, great. And uh, Brendan Healy, that's another person you've worked with a lot. Um, how did you get first meet uh, him and, and what did you work on? 
I went to see a show that he did um, at Equity Theater, and uh, Mev Beatty was in it, I remember. I don't remember who else, but it was really struck me. It was I thought it was just astonishing, and... Um, uh, and I, we, we probably met briefly then, and I was kind of uh, very effusive. Uh, I don't know if he remembers that. But um, uh, then when he became artistic director of Buddies, uh, I guess we met kind of like out in the theater community, and we did a few shows there. We did um, Blasted uh, and The Maids and um, Arigato Tokyo, Daniel McIver piece. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Did you ever do any assisting? That seems to be the logical thing. The, you know, I didn't. Is... The only person, when I was straight out of theater school in 94, I went out to Banff and they had a kind of special program then. And I assisted Patrick Clark uh, on a show, but that's it. And um, I kind of regret not having done that because, you know, you're very, as a designer, you're just working, you don't get to work with other set designers yeah. or other costume designers. So, um, you, if you haven't assisted, you're just not exposed to like a plurality of ways of of, of working, mm-hmm. is one thing. So you're constantly, you know, kind of like carving your own wheel, yeah. uh, and also just learning how to use an assistant yeah. took me a long time. It was a huge learning curve because I was used to doing it on my own, yeah. and uh, especially in an environment like uh, Stratford where you have to rely on your assistant to get through the the process. It's really important to learn how to utilize them, right? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, when did you end up uh, here? You've been here at Stratford for several seasons now, right? Seven yeah. or six or seven six seasons. Or seven yeah. Seasons. yeah. Yeah. And how did you? What was the connection first that brought you here? Was it director or was it? Uh, it was Chris. Chris Abraham. Chris yeah. Abraham. We were working together. We sort of work together, kind of all the time these mm-hmm. days. And um, it was a kind of natural move when he got a job here. Yeah. And what, what was the show? Uh, for the pleasure of seeing her again, it was at the Tom Patterson Theater. Right. Yeah. Great. Uh, and, and what was it like coming into the big space? Had you, I mean, obviously you worked in large spaces before. You're doing the regionals. Um, what was it like coming into a festival environment where there's just this sort of giant machine that you have to sort of get yeah, on board? Yeah, you know, and or, I was really like, I was, I consider, sort of still consider myself an indie theater designer, even yeah. though I've been sucked into the maw of <laughs> <Right>. Stratford. <laughs> so uh, it's a weird uh, identity crisis for me. And, you know, when I, and I had, like, I hadn't even seen a show here in a lot. Like, I don't have a kind of like, a history with with Stratford, and even when I was a student, I was very combative with the artistic. You know, when the students sat around and kind of talked to the artistic director, and I was like, "Do you have issues with relevance?" And <laughs> <do> you... <laughs> yes. um, so, what was sorry? What was your last oh, thread? No, it was go, your, your initial reaction, sort of oh, actually coming into Stratford yeah. and having to work inside the machine. Well, it was like you know, Chris kind of like is a kind of like he's a powerful. He just you know wherever he goes, he makes the kind of theater that he that he wants to to make. I mean, that's not in an arrogant way, but he's no. just a, a, a kind of a force. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it meant that. Uh, it, it, it was a, a struggle, but also because I didn't have an assistant in that first year, and I had no idea. It was very disorienting mm-hmm. because the process here is quite different than another, mm-hmm. from every other theater company. Yeah. Uh, the orthodoxy of how you go about doing things. So, um, yeah, that was pretty draining that first year. But we were really. Ha- it was also uh, what I never expected was. Um, 
how moved I would be to see so many people come and see a show. You know, you get used to these sort of small numbers and that's the, you know, your constant reality. And then to see like hundreds and hundreds of people at every show. And it was a very, you know, this particular play is um, uh, a a middle-aged guy dealing with the the death of his mother and her sickness and, and what that means. And to see like a room full of kind of like older um, men openly weeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, you know, this is a real value to the community to, to do work here. Absolutely. Uh, and how about um, in indie theater, you're doing a lot of stuff on your own. I mean, you may have a carpenter, you may have a props person, but a lot of the buying and a lot of maybe some of the building too, the more complex stuff, um, uh, you certainly have to take it, keep, keep in mind that you know, you're you're either responsible for it, or you have to make sure that the, the small resources you have can can accomplish it. In a big machine like this, you've got artisans for every craft, from jewelry to wigs to costumes to furniture building and prop building. How did you adapt your process to incorporate those artisans into your work, or did you did you stick to your own philosophy despite that? So can you, what do you mean exactly, well, like in it, my philosophy, it, like my indie kind of like, how do, how, do I, how do I take my indie well, theater it, maker self and kind of deal with them and still make the work that I want to make? I guess or, so. In, uh, in some way, it's all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of new toys. Yeah. And sometimes you can be tempted to go, oh, I've got to build all this, I've got all these people, I've got to build all this furniture, I'm going to make a lot of furniture, I'm going to make something really strange. Or it's, no, I'm committed to simplicity or I'm committed to... Uh, a certain style of approaching the work that is that doesn't really change. Some people uh, that I've spoken to, when entering, when getting this new resource, change the way that uh-huh. they work because they have more opportunities that they never thought uh, they would have before. Um, or did that even? That's not that. Uh, yeah, that hasn't been my experience. It's more like, yeah. If anything, I just feel like the budgets are just as tiny as ever sure. <laughs> because. Uh, the, you're, you're, you're building a, uh, you're building a show for a much bigger space. So you have to, you know, you have to occupy a bigger footprint. Um, and the, you know, the, it's, I could do the same set for way less money in Toronto. Right. Uh, things cost more here to make uh, and because it's a rep theater so everything has to be the a lot of money goes to um, whereas you know in an indie theater you can just install yourself and kind of glue yourself into the into the theater space and so a lot of energy goes to figuring out how to make that a repable uh, I don't know, you know, like for example, when Chris and I did Othello at the Avon, big pros house, and um, we decided to make the set this kind of raked revolve was a way of dealing with um, certain issues that the space presented in doing Shakespeare. And um, we couldn't afford to have an automated uh, revolve. So we had to push it with people. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, ultimately, I think that was fantastic because um, it was way more sensitive and it was, you know, um, we managed to make it um, 
operate in a very subtle way that it wasn't obvious. But, you know, you're here at Stratford with all of the bells and whistles and you're still having to push the revolve by hand. Uh, yeah, I would say it's not, I don't experience that. It's, but but the, the difference is trying, it is challenging to try to uh, continue um, to have an organic uh, process where it's possible to be uh, have a, there's a fluidity um, to the design that's sort of responding to what comes up in rehearsal because that's just um, that's very challenging for the for the theater to accommodate that you know it's it's so complicated to do so many huge shows simultaneous so I'm there's always a little bit of friction around that, that issue, if uh, that kind of answers Yeah, that totally right. makes sense. I, I think that one of the things I realized when I went to the Shaw Festival was that the um, the process is much is very much the same. It's just the mistakes cost more <laughs> because they're always they're always bigger or, you know, you made that decision six months ago and now it's not working and, oh, my God, we've got two months to... <laughs> get into the theater so now we have to rebuild like you just can't make those mistakes right yeah. so you're under pressure to make those decisions as best you can with less information than being in rehearsal hi there i'm interrupting briefly to thank those of you who've chosen to support the title block on patreon.com i really enjoy doing the show and I'm not going to stop while I have the time, but it does cost a bit to do the show between equipment and uh, web hosting, not to mention extra mic rentals to ensure that special events like the Bellows sound as best as I can make them. So I'm asking that you help out to cover the cost and help me to continue the capture of the story of Canadian theatre design. Please go to patreon.com forward slash the Tubblock podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. The uh, and it, it strikes me that uh, we had in our pre-conversation we, you talked about how you like to or you really focus on accommodating the architecture of the theater into the design. Here, of course, at the festival stage, it, you know the one thing. I mean, they they have adapted it so you can you can alter it in many different ways. Take out the the, uh, the inner above the balcony uh, balcony away, <laughs> but uh, it is very much the architecture defines so many things in this space. Um, uh, talk to about talk to me about your commitment to that process and how you you try to incorporate the architecture uh, into your work and how important that is to you. Uh, well, I uh, I always like for the um, the design rather than uh, kind of being a. Uh, I, I always start with the theater and the space itself, and I um, unless the director and I know the space really well. I will um, try to organize a visit to the theater uh, with the director and we'll just sit. And this is in a, you know, and I try to avoid talking about with, to the director um, about the particulars, the demands of locations or whatever of the play uh, as long as possible so that we're just, you know, in, in a stage of thinking about the kind of bigger ideas of the play and what we want to achieve um, vision-wise with it. Uh, that in tandem with considering the theater itself and what it offers, like what its challenges are, because I want to create, you know, I want to develop a space that is um, 
and that is useful for the actors that will help kind of, and often the theaters themselves provide a lot of challenges for the actors, you know, that maybe they're like the, 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 the stage is kind of buried behind a couple of prosceniums like at the, at the Avon. So they're very distant from the audience. Maybe there's acoustic issues. Um, uh, there's all kinds of, of factors. And it's like, how does this particular play um, sit within this theater? Like what's the, or what orientation is best? Um, uh, so when you start that way, you end up often kind of like trying to, you know, maximize the theater in some way, like really, you know, bring out the, the virtues that it has and at the same time solve some of the, the challenges that it presents as well. And so it means that the, you know, sometimes the sets that I've done are, uh, you don't even realize the design is, there's a design. It's, we were making like pretend fake walls or we're lowering the ceiling or we're bringing in, um, and I spend money on kind of clearing out some backspace uh, that they've never used before <laughs> uh, so that uh, you have an incredible sense of depth and sort of really exploiting what's what's there in the theater to create a... Also, it's fun for the audience because they get to have a new, ex a fresh experience with the theater. And of course, at the festival, that's extremely challenging mm -hmm. because the budgets are actually quite um, austere here, uh, particularly for the festival theater. The idea is to use it, that it, it provides what's what's necessary, and the cost of changeover is so high um, that they try to make a, a more modest um, um, design environment. So that's been, you know, that's like ramps up the challenge yeah. level of kind of trying to create something new and fresh for the audience. So for Macbeth, for example, um, I became interested. You know, the, the proscenium here is uh, peculiar. It's mm -hmm. a hodgepodge architecturally of kind of suggestions of uh, Elizabethan theater that have been kind of like carved out over the years by modified um, according to various shows that have come and gone. And so I thought, well, you know, it's complex and there are all these um, apertures. And what if I were to kind of like actually use these apertures and open them up and um, so create, you know, if there's an island in front of like the known solid ground for Macbeth, but the behind him is this universe which is full of doubt and un unknowabilities, kind of shadowy and um, uh, to exploit the unknowableness of the architecture itself. So that's an example that's of that really, process. That's really interesting. I know gone are the days of building a full-scale carousel to put on the festival stage <laughs> or, or cabaret, which had a separate deck. I remember, uh, I don't think I ever saw it, but it was some sort of monumental, um, monumental extra architecture plopped on top. Like doing a Prost show in the thrust stage doesn't make, I mean, it's interesting, but it doesn't make quite a lot of sense if you just want to rework the stage into a Prost show. It costs a lot of money. Um, is it true that you end up, uh, I mean, you're trying to change uh, the aperture. Uh, is, it, is it a lot more focus on props and furniture and movable items and, and things like that? Or is it, uh, like, can you actually change the deck uh, much? Or again, I guess it becomes a, a matter of cost and, and time, right, for the changeover. It, it does also because the... Um, you know the the whole the the theaters here and and the festival theater is so um, 
uh, idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a building with a cute little kind of crown and everything. Yeah. And uh, and the theater itself is it's like it was made by hand by some you know art carpenters, and <laughs> which it was. And yeah. so it's it's extremely irregular. Mm-hmm. And there was all this kind of like, you know, rice paddies of, of steps and stuff. And right. and they're all, they're not symmetrical. Right. So it's incredibly um, costly labor-wise to, um, you know, intersect with the the architecture of the, of the theater because everything has to be, people have to come in and, and calibrate mm-hmm. um, the structure to the, the idiosyncrasies of, of, of the of the stage um but it is possible you know um to with if you're kind of like clever about you know for example with taming of the shrew last year we had this kind of long runway of an elevated stage above uh uh above the and we sort of we used part of the um so the musicals always have much more money, and they're kind of paying for all of us to be here. <laughs> uh, and so we used part of their set for their deck, for example, um, to create that structure. And then, um, that's great. I feel like I haven't really answered your question. No, 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 no. That's great. I thought that's information I think is interesting. Um, what about your other work with Chris Abraham? Because you've worked with him a lot. Yeah. Uh, what were some key shows or key uh, experiences with him that you think shaped your career and uh well i get uh, working backwards i guess we uh, the more recently we did a couple of shows one called watershed which was at the pan am games last summer and we'll um come back uh to the tarragon and various um we'll tour basically um canada this year and uh seeds so these two watershed and seeds were two um kind of documentary style theater um, productions which were co-productions uh, with Port Parole, a uh, Montreal company that uh, Annabelle Sutar, as uh, a playwright, um, founded. And so this is a really interesting, you know, Annabelle is a, a, a very um, a powerful, forceful um, theatre maker, as is Chris. And so the combination of those two people, we, um, those are shows that I'm really proud of, that we, um, they're very kind of, um, you know, the, a lot of the work that one does in theater can be uh, quite abstract in terms of the, you know, the the the, the literal contribution that you're making um, to society. And so it's nice every once in a while to do something that's very specifically calls out Harper, for example, on his, uh, you know, kind of um, squashing of the scientific process mm-hmm. and democracy, and um, but does it in a way that. Um, you know, she's just very uh, interested, as is Chris, in kind of um, the issues that we face today and kind of addressing that in um, with the work that we do. Uh, also, we did um, A Midsummer Night's Dream here uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, it's like, so the, like, how do you kind of reconcile your indie past with working at the Stratford Festival mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, in a certain stage of your career and what are you doing? And I was really happy with um, that production because we said it, it was uh, um, uh, set in a kind of backyard and um, a couple of guys were getting married and the concept of the show was that it was um, uh, the guests at this um, marriage had um, 
as a gift, they had created this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream right. and were kind of acting it out for them. And so it was a great conceit because it allowed us to have a kind of modern and ha have a lot of fun mm -hmm. with the play. And it also, you know, brought gay marriage, like, mm -hmm. uh, to a very conservative audience mm -hmm. um, and kind of said, you know, this Shakespeare can... Um, uh, can include is is you know is this inclusive, mm -hmm. and it caused uh, a shocking amount of shock. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, it both in terms of the you know the 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 content of the idea of gay marriage, but also like the the modernization. You know the fact that we weren't doing period costumes and so on, and so it feels like you know. But these are important things to do, and an answer. This is what we can offer: is kind of um, not just working within our little bubble um, in Toronto of kind of urban sophisticates, you know, mm -hmm. to kind of push the boundaries outside um, for a bigger audience. It seems uh, one of the um, themes that I've been talking about with people in the last couple of years has been uh, the relevance of theater and how we make it relevant. And part of that is. How do we maintain, build and maintain an audience uh, in competition in a very busy um, entertainment world? And uh, there's a lot of opportunities for distraction that are not theater. Um, and uh, how do you, do you think that we're doing a good job of that? I mean, you were, now you worked in two different environments like you're talking about where Stratford is a very mainstream. Yeah. Uh, the audience is different than the audience you deal with in Toronto. Um I mean, they're still coming to see shows here. How much do you think you can push them into thinking differently? Uh, and is that valuable? Or is it okay to do... This question's wandering all over the place, but... but mm -hmm. <laughs> like, no, 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 like I, How do you keep theater relevant as a designer? Like, how do you, how do you try to maintain that kind of sense of perspective uh, in telling a story that's important to people? Um, and... Do you think it's it's a reasonable goal uh, in theater? Or is that a crazy question? <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> and one, you know, it's the existential question that, uh, you know, keeps one up at night. Mm -hmm. And it's part of what uh, makes the work so intense because uh you know I guess it's a constant for me that um I want to uh I want the work that I do to be of value to society I want to kind of like change the world at some level. I still you know have my kind of ideals uh and yet it is so difficult um to make art, basically. I think it's the same in, in every art form. Um, and the, um, you know, one doesn't succeed more often than one does. <laughs> That's just the, the truth of it. And yet, you know, so it's heartbreaking and yet um, very, you know, in the, when one, you know, when you do feel like you're, you're breaking through, it's, it's very validating. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I guess as I get older, I feel that, you know, I used to um, be, uh, feel that, you know, the, the, the 
a certain kind of theater was 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 relevant and valid and was going to you know if only everybody was making this kind of theater then yes we would yeah. kind of break through and now I guess I feel that um, it's a, it's a very subjective universe and what works for one individual who's the public you know who's not necessarily is 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 very different so all I can do is um, bring a kind of intensity uh, of integrity to to like a drive to a passion for excellence I guess in the work that I do and hope that it has um, um, meaning for uh, a bunch of people who, who come to see it that's great. I mean, I remember doing a production of Heartbreak House at Shaw uh, the year, I think it was 1999, maybe 1998. And uh, it was a radical difference from the usual. I think Peter Hartwell designed the set. Kevin Lamont lit it. And uh, uh, Tadeusz Berdecki was the director. Yeah. Who did Schindler's List, I think. It was his big, or he was in Schindler's List. Anyways, uh, he was in Shannon's list, I think. Uh, anyways, he, he's a he's a Eastern European. He's a big. He's a great director, and he, and the production was radically different. It wasn't a ship, <laughs> like people. There were no naval references in the set, like we were expecting, because of the captain, who's the who's the who's the big lead in it. And uh, his answer was, "We're artists. Like we can't. We have to give them what we think." Our interpretation, our interpretation of the world is, and it's up for the audience to have their reaction. We can't be, we can't be obsessive about how the audience is reacting to it. We have to make up our minds about the story we want to tell and just tell it. And they're going to react the way they react, and we can't obsess about it. Just like stop worrying about it, about what they think, right? Uh, which, in a world that you have to sell theater, still matters. So it's a bit maybe reckless but at the same time it feels so freeing <laughs> right because you want to tell the story you want to tell and as an artist you know you have to have some you have to trust that you can tell that story right it's um yeah the whole european like you know i think um it's challenging for us because in in europe there's a kind of like a taste for uh uh, the, amongst the audiences, a desire to see things that are different, that sort of challenge, you know, a kind of like postmodern sensibility somehow that sort of challenges orthodoxy. And in fact, it can be quite difficult to do something there that is by their, you know, uh, definition um, conventional. Like um, this Ostermeyer, um, this uh, German director who did um, Enemy of the People that Richard um, picked up most recently there. You know, he's considered a bit conventional in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. And for us, he's like super radical. <laughs> but, you know, they went through the Holocaust. Like they, the, the 20th century, the, 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 the formative experience for people growing, you know, and I really um, faced this as a... North American living there um, for the past fifteen years in in Europe. It's we're just we have a different life experience, and theater is a social reflects a society. So you know we're it's really refreshing for us to see the Europeans um, work, and yet you know we have we do have a different our our audiences uh, are different. Um, uh, I think that I'm interested in the differences between Canadian 
sensibilities in the in the world and how we fit into the world as well. Yeah, right? Because not a lot yeah. of us break out and do. You know, we do we do stories that are told um, for our friends and for our own communities, and we uh, we don't necessarily get outside of uh, outside of Canada to see the other stories that are being told. Uh, and there's a certain exoticism about that, right? But uh, but and I also but then I get frustrated. You know, I'm I'm like you know people. Uh, bemoan, you know, our kind of conventional aesthetic mm-hmm. and Anglo theater here, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and yet, yeah. y- you know, in Europe, there's another kind of conventionality. Mm-hmm. It's the avant-garde conventionality, mm-hmm. and it's just as uh, you know, in my limited experience. But it's 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 a kind of orthodoxy too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have, and the orthodoxy comes from, it's a social, you know, we're a kind of, there's the, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> terrible, 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 but I'm just like, and now I'm having an, you know, I'm having an argument with very, and I could just like see people go like, yeah. no, 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 no. It's, you know, or Brent, like, because we also have, we, we, we have an imperative to challenge you know, to challenge audiences. Mm-hmm. I don't know, one thing, um, I wish I had more specifics, but um, a, a friend of mine, um, Rose Plotek, uh, who's working at NTS now in the directing program, uh, she was at Under the Radar, and there was in New York, I think that's where, and there was some, there's some gr- some people or some group there are, uh, they have workshops for audiences where they, oh. um, where they sit down and they kind of talk about um, how to, like, not how to see a play, but, like, you know, kind of like this are, the, if the play was presented this way, it would, they're trying to, like, help open people's minds mm-hmm. to what they're about to see. And, like, um, so, um, uh, the, like, the Wooster group or something, you know, it's like, w- w- how, Maybe it's like they talk to them before and after the show, mm-hmm. and it gives them a chance to kind of like articulate their confusion. And um, but then they help kind of go. You know, very often you feel like like the audiences who came to see a Midsummer Night's Dream. It's like you're bringing all these preconceived ideas about what theater should be, mm-hmm. and if only you could kind of go, what if I just you know, I was just like, what if I just um, set those aside for a moment and was really open to what's you know, I didn't have this filter, I might have a, a better time. Yeah. Uh, and this was, this, so this group in New York is actually quite successful, apparently, and, and I thought, oh, that would be a really good idea. Yeah. Um, I feel like making, you mean, you, theater is a social event, like you said, and I feel like ignoring that, you ignore that at your peril, right? The, like, and, and there's, yeah, there's, there's, maybe the issue here is there's not much discourse, you know, mm-hmm. about, that's the problem, is the, rev- the, the, the standard of review... And, you know, I do appreciate um, Holger Syme, even though I don't always agree with with his opinions, Mm -hmm. because it's just another voice, you know, saying, like, there's this other kind of theater and there's this other way of of doing this. Somebody's talking about process, Mm -hmm. and I wish that... um, the audience had an opportunity, you know, the public uh, had more exposure to the kind of push and pull of um, what kind of, like, theater should we be making? Yeah. Um, there's a kind of assumption um, 
behind the reviews of like this is good theater or bad theater. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no public debate, I guess, about what what art should be. But that's another aspect of the Anglo theater. You know, there's like a lack of interest in in the making of the art yeah. of art. So that's challenging for us here yeah. as artists. Absolutely. Uh, and then just one last question before I let you go. Um, if you were speaking to somebody who's uh, training in theater or considering a career in theater, given the challenges that we've just been speaking about, what do you think uh, they need to know in order to enter theater? And what kind of training do you think that they need to get to prepare them to do this as a for a living and, and to work inside, as a designer, to work inside this environment that, that currently exists? Uh, well, you know, I guess it's, to me, astonishing that theater still, you know, because in the 90s, we were like, oh, my God, theater's dying. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we had all these, com- and, and, and the same, and yet here it still is, mm-hmm. astonishingly. Um, it always seems like it's on the, you know, cusp of break. extinction. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think that, you know, it's a, the people who end up sticking it out in theater are really attracted to the collaborative aspect of it. Uh, it's hard to make work with other people, and you have to kind of like be, I guess, excited about that and, and turned on by that to stick it out in, in the profession. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, the, the particulars of the training, where you would go to school or what you would study in particular, I think ultimately... Are, uh, probably are less important than your communication skills, you know, and, and being able to, you know, listen well and um, um, work well with a, uh, be in, in, engaged in, in working with a group of people to make a piece of art. Um, That's fair enough. Absolutely. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much. That was designer Julie Fox joining me in Stratford in May of this year. Another Bellows episode is in the works and an interview next time with designer E.O. Sharp. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the TuttleBlockCA and on Facebook.com forward slash the TuttleBlock podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the TuttleBlock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like this show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you wonder if it's an innie or an outie below. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on The Title Block. Jules. Thank <laughs> you. Jules. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> <laughs>